0: Good morning. One of the great things about looking forward to glory will be that maybe I'll even be able to sing like Bob. And those people who sit in front of me won't have to be tortured anymore. And then I thought, well, why aim low? Maybe I could even sing like Lauren. I'd like to talk to you about expectations, and be, but before I do, I, I would be remiss if I did not bring you greetings from the campstress. Um, it's been two months since I saw them when I saw them last week, and I will tell you that the change in Allison was remarkable, was uh, astounding, if I could even say that, and she's progressing very well. They um, have finally found a tutor for her, they believe, and to tutor her in braille, and so they're progressing If you saw the last post, he had a meeting with the Canadian National Association of the Blind, and they were able to give him a cane and a talking watch. I think the talking watch will be a relief because she asked for the time about every five minutes. I said, it's five minutes later than when you just ask, and that didn't work well, so we had to tell her the time often. So um, She's making wonderful progress. Her personality is doing very well, and she's very upbeat and has not allowed any of her physical difficulties to affect her mentally or spiritually, as far as I could tell. So thank you for praying for them. I would encourage you to continue to pray for them. They have many challenges, many, many challenges. I'd like to look at Luke 4. I'll return to Luke 4. I'm gonna address an issue that I struggle with, and that's expectations, expectations. When I make decisions, I make the best decisions I can. And when someone fails to inform me of all the facts and I make decisions when I don't have all the facts and I get really disappointed because I would have maybe made a different decision. The truth of the matter is, though we all have expectations, we make decisions and our knowledge is partial. And yet we're constantly making our expectations on partial knowledge. So we're gonna look at Luke 4 and verse 16. Luke writes from a Gentile perspective. He writes to Gentiles. He's the author of the gospels who will tell us most about Jewish traditions because he realizes that his Gentile readers would not know them. He presents Jesus as unique, as a unique son of man. He was unique in his birth. He was unique in his baptism. He was unique in his temptations because he resisted them and came away without sin. Luke's going to tell us that this religion that was in place by the time he wrote this was not new. He's going to introduce the ministry of John the Baptist by quoting the Old Testament. And in this passage, we're gonna see that he's gonna introduce the ministry of Jesus Christ by quoting the Old Testament. And this wasn't something new or different. This was what God had planned all the time. Let's look at this passage, see what it has to say. And I don't know whether we are stopping by my one o'clock or by that clock's one o'clock, so, all right. Starting with verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son. And he said unto them, "'You will surely say unto me this proverb, "'Physician, heal thyself. "'Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, "'do also here in thy country.' "'And he said, "'Verily I say unto you, "'No prophet is accepted in his own country. "'But I tell you of a truth, "'many widows were in Israel in the day of Elias, "'when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, "'when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Serepata, a city of Sidon, and unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elishas, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, save in Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up, and thrust him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he passing through the midst of them went his way and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath day. And they were astonished at his doctrine for his word was with power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can publicly read your word and declare its contents. We thank you that is the word of God that is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce, Father, our very hearts and minds. And so, Father, we would pray today that the Spirit would be active, that it would pierce our hearts and our minds, and, Father, reveal to us what our inner thoughts are so that we might know what they are and we might confess our our sins and, Father, give praise and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we again give you our thoughts and our minds and ask for you, Father, through the Spirit to deal with them. We give you thanks in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. He comes back to his hometown. He's been doing wondrous things in Capernaum. They've heard about them, they know about them. He comes into the synagogue. Luke wants us to tell you that's where he was every Sabbath. That was his habit. That's what he did was attend the synagogue. And he stands up and they hand him the scroll. And he opens the scroll. And he opens it to a passage in Isaiah. And if you turn there, it's Isaiah 61. And as you turn there, I want you to think, if you're anything like me, when someone opens a passage that's a familiar passage, you start saying, what's he going to preach on? I hope he doesn't miss this key point. I hope he remembers to mention that. I hope he doesn't miss that out of that passage. And I'm sure as he opens this passage and starts to read, it was a very familiar messianic promise. They were all aware it spoke of the Messiah. And they were saying, what's he going to say? What's this man who speaks so graciously? What's this man who has such gracious words and is such a teacher? What is he going to say about this passage? If you turn over to Isaiah 61, and we'll read it. He reads this messianic passage. But the thing that happens is he doesn't meet their expectations partly in what he reads. If you notice in... The first verse of Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings upon the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison, to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped. And he didn't read the rest in the day of vengeance of our God. And someone's sitting there listening to him and they're going, what? He left out the best part of that verse the whole idea of the Messiah coming was to throw off these Roman rulers to free us from Rome. And he didn't even read that part. The Messiah, the long-promised Messiah, what they were looking for was a Messiah to come and set up the kingdom. They had high expectations. And he comes, and he doesn't even read that part of the verse. Notice their reaction. He sits down, closed the book, gave it again to the minister, and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. What's he going to say? When John the Baptist baptized, he said, there's one coming greater than I that's going to do what? Baptize with the Spirit and with fire. What did the fire speak of? It spoke of judgment. The Messiah was supposed to come and judge the Gentiles and make Israel the most glorious kingdom of the whole world. And he doesn't even mention the vengeance. He doesn't mention judgment. He sits down. They're all looking at him. What's he going to say? And in verse 21, he begins to say unto them, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. He declares that he's the Messiah. He declares that he's the one sent from God. He's the servant. He's the comforter that Isaiah speaks of. He's the one that's going to introduce the glorious kingdom. He's the one that's going to elevate Israel to the position they want. This is what they're all thinking. But yet, look what it says next. And they all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of the mouth. And they said, and they said, is not... This Joseph's son, how can you be the Messiah? You're the son of a carpenter. You're a son of a nobody. How can you be the Messiah? And Jesus reads their mind. He understands what they're thinking. He understands what their expectations are. And then he does something amazing. He escalates the situation. You would think that he would appease them. You think he'd try to explain it to them. You think he'd turn to some other passages in Isaiah to show them that their expectations were wrong. But instead, he says in verse 23, and he said unto them, You shall surely say unto me, this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum do also here in this country. Prove it. Sometimes we say from Missouri that it's a show-me state. They have to see it to believe it. Well, maybe some of these people from Nazareth had heard about that. And they say, we need to see it to believe it. What was their problem? What was their problem? He's going to point out their problem. The problem was not him. The problem was not Jesus Christ. The problem was them and their unbelief. The problem was not Jesus Christ. The problem was them and their unbelief. And so in verse 24 he's gonna expound upon this and he's gonna show them what their problem of unbelief is and he says this, "'Verily I say unto you, "'No prophet is accepted in his own country.'" They were sitting in judgment on the Messiah He wasn't meeting their expectations, prove it. Show us who you are, you're just a simple son of Joseph. How can you be the Messiah, prove it. But it wasn't his problem. He was who he declared himself to be. The problem was their unbelief. And so now he's gonna tell them a story. He's gonna actually tell them two stories. And they're important to understand. And the first one is, but I tell you a truth in verse 25. Many widows were in Israel in the day of Elias when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and great famine was throughout the land. Why was there problem unbelief? What's this story have to do? Well, in John 8 and 3, we read the Pharisees said this They answered him, We, are, we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How saith thou, You shall be made free? And Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I send you, Whosoever committeth sin is a servant of sin. And he's going to tell them now a story when Israel was in a terrible time and a terrible place. When, if we remember the story, Elijah had prayed and asked for the Lord to withhold rain because the apostasy of Israel and the Lord withheld rain for three years and six months. And there's a great famine in all the land. If you remember, the apostle went up, the prophet went up and he sat by the brook. And the ravens fed him, and he sat by the brook until the ravens stopped coming, and the brook dried up, and he wondered what God wanted next, and God sends him to a widow. But God did not send him to a Jewish widow. God sent him to a Gentile widow. He sent him to a Gentile widow. And the listeners there are listening to this story. And what's the purpose of the story? To show the lack of belief in Israel and the apostasy that the Lord had to send his prophets somewhere else. We know the story fairly well. He comes to the widow, and what does he say? He says to the widow, I'm hungry. And the widow says, I have enough cake and oil to make my son and myself, our last meal, and then we're going to die. And to this Gentile woman, the prophet says, make it for me first. And the widow obeys and makes the last of her food for the prophet because faith always produces obedience. True faith always produces obedience. There was no asking for miracles. There was no asking for the prophet to prove who he was. The Gentile woman had more faith and more understanding of God than the Jewish people of Nazareth that were in the synagogue. And in simple faith, she makes the last of the meal. And as we know the rest of the story, what happens, her meal and her flour, her flour and her oil never run dry. And so what he's telling them is that proof is in in faith and obedience. And then you'll get your proof. There's no magic. There's no tricks. If you're in unbelief, you're going to remain in unbelief. God's not here to prove himself to you. Why? And we're going to see that in the next story. Because when you sit in judgment upon God, the issue is pride and unbelief. And so now he's going to tell him the story of Nahum. Naaman. Now, we all know the story of Naaman, one of my favorite, one of my favorite to preach the gospel from. Naaman was a general of Syria. They had conquered the northern tribes. They had taken captives from the northern tribes, and they went back to Syria. He was a hated enemy. He gets leprosy. One of the captives is a young girl who works in his household, and she goes and she says, there's a prophet in Israel that can heal you. He was desperate enough to try anything. He gets his entourage, as we would call it today, and he goes to see the prophet. I can't imagine what the people of Israel saw, this great general with all his attending courts and armies and whatever else he took going through Israel because it was someone they feared. And he shows up to the prophet, and the prophet sends down a mist, Sends down an employee or assistant to tell him what to do. To go dip in the River Jordan seven times. And now expectations come into play. Because Naaman's expectations was the prophet would have come down and spoke to him. We call that dissing nowadays or not showing proper respect. He was a famous man and the prophet didn't even bother to come down. Besides that, they have greater rivers in Syria than the Jordan. And he thinks, and he thinks, and he's going to return to Syria because his expectations were unmet. Just like the people of this story, their expectations were unmet. And his people say, hey, listen, going back to Syria isn't going to get rid of the leprosy for you. You really need to do what the prophet asked you to do. And what? In simple faith. Simple faith he obeys and he's healed. And he's healed. Now that brings me to how it affects me. How often are my expectations not met. And I want God to prove himself. I deal with many young men, and sometimes older, and sometimes married situations, and in Vancouver last week, a man came up after I preached this message and said, do you really believe what you're preaching? He said, who's going to hold God accountable? when he doesn't keep his promises. And I said, your problem is you have too small of a God. My God's absolutely perfect. He never makes a mistake. The problem isn't God. Just like here, really, I was a very poor preacher that night because he really missed the point of the whole message. The problem is not God. If we get disappointed in God, the problem is not God. The problem's right here, and this last two years or so, we've had some things that you just wonder, because that's not my expectations. I see a family serving God in Mexico and, and, and faithfully serving God, and God's using them to then take them off their field of service and put them in a different field of service with their daughter on the verge of death for 50 days are not my expectations of what's right and what's just. But the problem isn't with God, the problem is with my expectations. I was with Trevor several times this week and told this story more than once, but there in the hospital he had a new ministry and the first situation came up that this young man who was selling uh, pastries off a cart was beaten and left for dead by some people who robbed him. And he was laying in the bed next to Allison with, a, with an unknown brain injury. And Trevor was praying for the young man. And the father in tears came to him and he said, I can't pray for my son because I don't know your God. And Trevor was able to lead the man to Christ so that he could pray for his son. And Trevor said the first selfish thought that came to him was, okay, Lord, you brought me here to have a soul saved, a soul got saved, now it's time to go home. The Lord wasn't done. He wasn't done for another 50 days or so. And so Trevor's expectations was the Lord had brought him there to use him, but the trial continued. The problem wasn't with God. Because God's ways and thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and God's ways are higher than our ways. We only know partially, and God knows it all. God had a plan to bring a son to what? To suffer first on the road to Emmaus. What did he say? That shouldn't the Son of Man first suffer and then enter into his glory? Nobody expected that. They'd all missed it a suffering Messiah. Now we sit here rejoicing in the fact that he came first to suffer because he paid for our sins at Calvary. And through simple faith, we can accept that he paid the price that we deserved. That the judgment that sat over our head was fully paid and satisfied by the death of Christ. And through simple faith, we can believe that. And yet, I've had young men tell me they're angry with God because things aren't working out as they expected. Their expectations are not being met. Are they like Naaman? Are they, is it pride? Are they sitting in judgment with God? When I was up there, we got word that Gene McCarthy had died. And here's a couple that's faithfully serving the Lord, and I ran into two young men who were at the funeral this weekend from Vancouver. And they spoke so highly of the Galilee Project and what they've learned and how she had affected them. And it's seemingly in the prime of life, the Lord takes one of his servants home who's serving, who's doing more than, than, than many of us. That's not my expectations. But I thank God I have a perfect God and I guard my heart against pride that I don't sit in judgment upon my perfect God. That I don't ask God why and get mad when it's not the answer I wanted. The young man came up to me and he said, well, I don't know. I get mad at God. I said, the problem isn't God. He said, He's promised me that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His pur- purpose. And I said, Absolutely. Do you believe that? He said, I used to. You know, God's ways are unsearchable and past finding out. When we sit in judgment of God, it's a problem of pride in our own hearts. I have a perfect God. I don't know what kind of God you have. But if he's not perfect, you don't have much of a God. Because my God's absolutely perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. He has a purpose in everything he does. And I'm thankful for that. And so as I look at this passage, he's telling them, your problem is a lack of belief. I'm not going to do any tricks. I'm not going to prove myself. You need to believe. And it's when you believe. I think there's people in this room who attest to this. That when you believe, then you see. That's when the blessings start is when you believe. God's not a magician. He's not in the business of proving himself. I thank God I'm looking back on the cross. Because as as Romans 8 would clearly tell us. That God has proven his love to us because he spared not his own son. And when we stop and think, and we live in a day and age where it's, what have you done for me lately? God just keeps pointing us back at the cross. He says, look what I've done. Look what I've done. The Holy One who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God gave everything. We read of the Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. And yet we sometimes question the goodness of God. I have to watch myself that I don't question the goodness of God. These folks here in Nazareth were questioning the goodness of God. They did not see it. They wanted it proved. They could not believe without proof. And so he gives them these two stories, one of simple faith. Simple faith from a Gentile. And unfortunately, that ground on him pretty good. They had a hard time accepting that. That of all of Israel, he sent him to a God sent. Elijah to a Gentile who exercised more faith than all the widows in Israel. And then Naaman, a Gentile general, their very enemy, there were lepers in Israel that needed to be healed, but it was their enemy that God chose to heal. Notice their reaction. Verse 28, and all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. They got mad. They got mad at God. And I've dealt with people who claim the name of Christ who say they're mad at God. We see this and we go, oh, that would never happen to me. I would never have gotten mad at Christ in that situation. I don't get mad at God when my expectations aren't fulfilled. I don't get mad when things don't work out quite the way I want them. I don't get mad when trials come my way. I don't even get mad when tribulations come my way. This is unique to them. I look at my heart and I can tell you that there are times where I get frustrated with God when things don't work quite the way I want them to work. I don't know if I ever got mad, but I've known people who've gotten mad. I've I've known people who've honestly have told me in a counseling session they're mad at God. And they usually throw a little pity party and they usually feel sorry for themselves and they miss the point that the issue is not God. The issue is not God, the issue is right here. Our hearts are not right. Our hearts are not right. And these guys get mad at God. And then notice in verse 29: they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. This is how mad they got. You want to compare us to Gentiles? You want to tell us the problem's ours? We'll deal with that. It's no wonder they were able to say, crucify him, crucify him, away with him. We will not have this man to rule over us. He failed to meet their expectations. He didn't do what they wanted. And yet I have to search my heart. Am I in that same position? Do I get frustrated when God doesn't do what I want? Do I, in my pride, sit in judgment on God? or do I simply believe and obey and follow in faith? I was glad what Tom, I was listening to a message, and Tom, who's here for the missionary conference, said that God calls us to follow him. And when we follow him, we'll find out where he wants us and where he's going to send us. It's not us to sit in judgment on God and wait We're to follow and obey. And when we follow and obey, like these two stories so clearly illustrate, that's when we'll be blessed. That's when God can pour out his rich blessing upon us, is when by faith we're obedient. When by faith we're obedient. Verse 30, but he passing through the midst of them went his way. It was not his turn or his time to die. He was the only one who was born to die and he had a point and a time where he knew that he would die. This is not it. Satan would have loved to have prevented the cross. You read the Old Testament and time and time and time again the messianic line was attacked because Satan wanted to prevent the Messiah from coming. He wanted to prevent the Messiah from having victory. And yet there at the cross, I believe Satan had expectations that he won that day. I think Satan's expectations was that he got the very creatures to crucify the creator. And yet Paul tells us that it was through weakness, through weakness, through apparent weakness, that Christ won the victory. And he goes on to these, thanks be to God to give us this, the victory through Jesus Christ. We can have that same victory that he won at the cross if we simply believe. Verse 31, he came down, down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath day, and they were astonished at his doctrine and his word was with power. Not the folks in Nazareth. He didn't meet their expectations. He was a certain just simply a carpenter's son, a carpenter's apprentice even. How could he be the Messiah? But he goes to Capernaum and you find those who will believe, those whose hearts are turned. As I read about science, I was meet, I, there's a young man at Buena Park that works in, in DNA testing and stuff, and he was telling us about just the wonders of DNA And in each cell, and cells are so small you can't see them, there's these strands of DNA. And inside the strands of DNA are triggers. And it's multiple layered. And yet, a scientist can study all this and say, there is no God. And he sits in judgment on God and says, no. When we're so intricately and wonderfully made, but I'll tell you what, Paul tells us that it's the God of this world that blinds those who don't believe. It's not the message. It's not the preaching of the cross. It's their eyes are blinded, sometimes willfully so. I pray that your eyes are not blinded to the greatness of Jesus Christ. I pray that you're not sitting in judgment, that you're not in pride saying, what God? you're willing as a widow in as name and to simply believe there's nothing wrong with God he's perfect if there's a lack of faith the problem is right here in our own heart let's pray father we thank you again for this message from your son father of faith oh father we would be like the widow and simply believe. We'd leave like Naaman and put our pride aside, Father, and in simple faith, be obedient. Help us, Father, with our expectations. Help us to understand that we have a perfect God. Help us to look at the cross, Father, and see how you have proved your love to us. Oh, Father, we understand your holiness and your greatness when we look at the cross and see the price that you are willing to pay for our sin so that we might never judgment know. Oh, Father, we'd ask that you would help us to open our eyes and that we might see, to search our hearts and see if there be pride causing a lack of faith. And then, Father, help us to see just how great you are the perfect God, the one who willingly gave his Son on our behalf. Father, we thank you and adore you, and we pray on all this in our Savior's holy and precious name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.